This episode is brought to you by Lila Quantum Tech. In the past two centuries, our understanding of longevity has revolutionized. From a mere 30 years average lifespan in 1800 to nearly 80 years today, we've made incredible strides. Now it's time to embrace the future of aging with Lila Quantum Tech. Lila Quantum Tech brings you products charged with quantum energy designed to restore balance and vitality. These products can help in managing stress, improving sleep quality, and promoting mental clarity, contributing to a younger biological age. Our modern lifestyles can accelerate aging and EMF radiation is everywhere. With Lila Quantum Tech, you can combat this trend and focus on utilizing the balancing effects of quantum energy to maintain your youthfulness and shield yourself and your loved one's well-being. To bring balance to your everyday life, boost your health and vitality, visit lelac.com, that's L-E-E-L-A-Q.com, and embark on a journey to a longer, healthier life. And for you, dear audience, get a 10% discount on Lila Quantum Tech products with code LONGEVITY10, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-I-T-Y-1-0, at checkout today. Welcome to the Longevity and Lifestyle Podcast, Pita. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. It's, it's such an honor. I'm such a big fan of all of the amazing work you're doing on longevity. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to dig into your topic because it's so important. And I'd love to start with if you can share some more about the groundbreaking work that you're doing in transforming vaginal health care. But I'd love to understand where it stemmed from. And, you know, can you share a little bit about your journey and your background to deciding to get into this important space? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I have always been fascinated by science and medicine. I think you know, growing up in Juarez, Mexico, I saw firsthand how a lack of resources can have a detrimental impact, not only on women's physical health, but also on her socioeconomic mobility. So mm -hmm. I started seeing when women in their families or when they're 14, 15, they don't have access to family planning, to the right health educational resources that really takes a toll on the poverty cycle and how they're able to continue their education, get a job, find a stable family. Um, and so to me, it really was that's the center of if you are able to care for women, to provide health and education resources for women, they can go on and live healthier lives. They can go on and be strong moms or strong um, caregivers. Um, and so I, I really fell in love with the idea of helping women and uplifting women by providing them with access to the best possible health care and the best um, health education. Um, and I think, you know, when I came into the U.S. to continue my studies um, in medicine and in science, I was absolutely shocked to realize that some of the problems that I was seeing in very um, poor communities in Mexico, I was seeing in, you know, in hospitals in the U.S. where I, I, I can guarantee you, you know, most women have their own version of going to the doctor's offices, having symptoms they can't be explained. The doctor mm -hmm. saying everything looks normal or you, know, you should drink more water. Or you're too stressed. Um, and I think, um, you know, really the amount of frustration comes from both the patient and the provider side. Um, and I was really shocked by the lack of data that I was able to get on my own body in the U.S. And as I dug into why is this happening everywhere in the world, you know, in all different types 
of income classes, um, we really looked into the fact that underpins Evie now. Um, we found out that in the US, women weren't required to be in clinical research until 1993. They were the banned. Point, they were even they were banned, banned from it. Yeah. Women of childbearing age were banned yeah. from research until 1993. Um, and so as you can probably imagine, the downstream effects of that in the healthcare system are absolutely massive, right? Mm -hmm. To this day, we're still diagnosed four years later than men across 700 diseases. Um, and so once we started really digging into the research, like why is this happening? Why can't we get the right diagnosis, the right treatment? Um, we, it really made our own frustrating experiences in the healthcare system make a lot of sense, right? You know, as mm -hmm. Janine Austin Clayton, who's at the NIH said, we literally know less about every single aspect of female biology compared to the male biology. Mm -hmm. um, and women are different from men in every single way from their DNA on up. I, I really believe that the most urgent issues facing women's health today is because all medical models, both in research and in practice are male centric, which erases all the unique biological differences between men and women. Um, and I think it's it's tough to swallow that this bias can actually jeopardize a woman's life. Um, and so all of this research are from our own experiences in the healthcare system, what I grew up seeing volunteering a lot of hospitals in Mexico and as well as in the US, um, it pointed to a massive opportunity to harness those unique signals that the female body is constantly giving off, um, that we never really studied the female body. Um, and so we thought, you know, if we actually got better at measuring and tracking these unique signals, we could finally do a much better job at predicting risk, treating diseases as they uniquely manifest in the woman's body, um, and also understanding how to educate women on their symptoms and their health issues. Um, and so that's really what we're building at Evie. We're, we're set out to, do, to, to build a platform to really unlock the power of precision female health, because I would say we, we finally are starting to have precision healthcare, but really for middle-aged, mid-sized white men. Um, <laughs> And so we, we're, really, we're really excited to be able to build this database on thinking about what are those biomarkers that we've been previously ignoring in our definitions of health and disease, and how can we use those to help women um, feel healthier and, and feel better? I mean, it's such an important mission as well. And I think so many people are just not even aware. And I'm talking about medical doctors included. I have a lot of friends and I was at a talk the other day about functional genomics and how, depending on how your genes are expressed, like the hormones are the conductor of the symphony, right? And then your gene expression that as estrogen breaks down, it can be, you know, either um, protective to the body or very toxic. And so yeah. women are just given birth control and be like, oh, you know, you should just be on it. Or actually better yet, don't even have a period, just continue 365 days a year of overdosing hormones to yourself or even with HRT, it's just kind of like, oh, sure, just, you know, try and see how you feel, et cetera, and without actually knowing what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this is so, so, so important. And I'd love to, for you maybe even to take a step back is like what is your roadmap and why are you focusing first on the um vaginal microbiome and what is that what are the next steps thereafter in terms of the biomarkers and things that you're looking at yeah you know usually when we say we're starting with the vaginal microbiome we get one of two questions either what is the vaginal microbiome um mm -hmm. or why are you starting there so i'll start with a quick 101 on the vaginal sure. microbiome yeah. um and then i can dive into what we're doing in the microbiome and the roadmap ahead. Um, but if you think of the vagina um, and its role in the, in the female body, it's essentially the structural connection between the outside world and your most important reproductive organs. Um, 
And as for the microbiome, you know, most people know what a microbiome is, the concept at least, the community of microbes that live on, on different parts of your bodies, includes bacteria, fungi, viruses. Um, we have one in our gut, we have one in our skin, in our mouths. Turns out we also have one in the vagina. And these microbes in our vagina have really co-evolved with us to do a lot more than just hang out there. It, it turns out they play a really interesting and protective role for us, um, which I like to refer as your local immune system. Um, mm -hmm. So really the, the, the vaginal microbiome can be a critical determinant of, of health. Um, uh, and then in terms of why we started there, I would say we talked to a lot of women, we talked to a lot of providers as well. Um, and it seemed like women were experiencing these conditions without really you know, relief, they would go to the doctor and statistically, they're more likely to get misdiagnosed than correctly diagnosed. And mm -hmm. even if they get correctly diagnosed, they're more likely to recur within three months uh, of treatment than to get better. Um, and so this pointed out to a huge consumer problem that we can start with. And when we talk to doctors alike, they were equally frustrated. Why? I don't have you know more tests I can give. I don't have any novel treatments I can give. The treatments for bacterial vaginosis haven't changed since 1980, right? Wow. It's 2023. It's, it's shocking to think that mm. a treatment doesn't work. Someone, it's like, as if you have a sinus infection and in six months, it keeps coming back, right? Like, I think mm. it would have been solved by now if it, if it was, um, you know, a different population experiencing this condition. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you, when you think about the vaginal microbiome as your local immune system, um, you know, it's usually dominated by protective bacteria, most of which are called lactobacilli. Um, and these protective bacteria are functioning as, as your local immune system by doing a few different things. So one, they produce lactic acid, keeping the vaginal environment optimal um, and acidic, um, making it really difficult for pathogens to survive and replicate in the vagina. Meaning mm -hmm. that even if a pathogen gets into your vagina, they can't really make it upstream and cause havoc because it's an acidic environment. But I, I always say anything fun, right? If you have sex with a new partner or if you have your period, um, your hormones can start to fluctuate. Um, your vaginal pH can actually rise and some of those bad microbes can take over that protective bacteria. And that's when women start experiencing common infections like bacterial vaginosis, um, UTIs, yeast infections. Um, and it turns out that you know your local immune system is responsible for actually a lot more than just these infections that women experience so often. This breakdown is also associated with much broader health outcomes like fertility or IVF failure, uh, preterm birth, STI acquisition, cervical cancer progression, and so much more. So it makes so much logical sense that without a protective vaginal microbiome, you no longer have this barrier preventing pathogens from going upstream. And so mm -hmm. for us, it seemed like a very important to start with if we're able to actually help women deal with their vaginitis, then we can also do research on, you know, how are these conditions related to cervical cancer progression or STI acquisition, fertility outcomes, preterm birth. Um, and so I think there was an amazing opportunity on the data side, um, but there was also a very prevalent and frustrating problem that women are experiencing. And so I always like to say we're doing patient-centric research. So we started with the patient who's the most incentivized to change and, and needs more help. Um, and through that, we are building the data sets that will allow us to do a lot more interesting research. Mm -hmm. So exciting. And can you share a little bit more about how you are gathering the data? Like, how does that process look like? 
where are you in that process and how receptive are providers as well to this? Um, because they're obviously, obviously if they're trained in a certain way, it's like, yeah. oh, well, at medical school, I learned this way. Like, what are you guys doing? Right. So I'd be curious to hear how that experience is. Yeah. I mean, I've been actually very pleasantly surprised. Um, I thought it was going to be, um, you know, an uphill batter, battle with providers. But mm -hmm. I would say even from the last two years, you know, when we started off by saying, you know, you need to pay attention to the vaginal microbiome. These conditions are recurring. Women are suffering from this. Um, I think providers were already using a PCR test. You know, there's LabCorp and Quest already have PCR tests. So mm -hmm. it wasn't that hard. Women are already going to the doctor for these conditions. They're already doing a type of sequencing for test testing for the presence or absence of bacteria that we know are related to these um, infections. I think um, a lot of the education we were doing with providers are why are these tests coming back negative and the patient is still experiencing symptoms? And that's mm. because we are only looking for, the current tests only look for four to five bacteria that could potentially be causing these symptoms. And if that comes out negative, the doctor says, you know, you don't have an infection. When in reality, there is hundreds of bacteria that could be causing this. And our tests are just limited and biased in what they're looking for. And mm -hmm. so um, we've definitely had worked with amazing providers who have been so receptive to it just because they also experience the frustration with their patients. Um, and it, it's also heartbreaking as a doctor, you know, to have this patient come back over and over again mm -hmm. and you can't really help them. Um, so I would say in the beginning, we had a lot of um, functional medicine doctors be really interested and open to it. And now mm -hmm. we're seeing all types of providers. We have family medicine doctors, we have OBGYNs. Um, and I think this just speaks to the problem that it's frustration on equal sides, right? Um, and I think um, a lot of the work we're doing too is educating the patient. Um, and so when they go to the doctor, they're not as frustrated or they're more educated on you know, what symptoms should, should they highlight with their doctor? What are all the things they need to know or ask the doctor to have a much more productive conversation? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's been, um, it's been really great working with providers. I think there's different types of providers who are more open to it, but they mm -hmm. give, they give us a lot of hope, I would say. And I think <laughs> as we start gathering data, we can then, um, you know, next year, we're really excited. We're going to present our data at ACOG and at several different medical conferences. Um, and I think, you know, that will, will slowly start to change. And I think we're also getting a lot of doctors reach out to us saying, my patient is bringing this test to me. Can you educate me on it? And so it's kind of like a bottoms up approach, I would say. Um, but it's, it's been great. There, there's, there are amazing providers who are out there hoping to, to help women. They just haven't necessarily had the right tools. Yeah. High time. So really exciting what you guys are doing. How much would you say the gut microbiome, the health of the gut microbiome and the correlation with the vaginal microbiome, how, how much are they correlated, would you say? And like, what are things that people can do through nutrition or other factors to have an optimal vaginal microbiome? Yes, that is a great question. I unfortunately have to answer it like many other questions I get, which is we don't have enough research to start pointing mm -hmm. to. This is exactly what we know. But what yeah. I can say is that you know gut gut microbiome modulation really points to systemic immunity as well and systemic mm -hmm. inflammation and so mm -hmm. naturally if you have you know a gut microbiome that is um low inflammation and protective i would say um speaking from our data that we see you know we haven't made um, correlation studies or or any um statistically significant links but we mm -hmm. do see a lot of women with gut issues that also have recurrent vaginal issues whether that is SIBO or IBS. Um, and, and we do see that a lot. And so I think um, 
there is definitely a link. We also have women tell us, you know, I cut XYZ from our diet and that really helped with my symptoms. Um, and, and women right now know their bodies a lot better than the medical system, I would say in the science community. Um, and so we like to say, you know, if that is working for you, it's probably linked to inflammation. Um, and so we, we highly encourage women to continue doing what they're doing um, if they find a diet that works for them. But I think it's it's definitely related. I would say, interestingly, the gut is very related to, for example, PCOS because of insulin regulations and other things. And so yeah. as we kind of start connecting the dots, I am, I am very optimistic we'll definitely find something. It's just a matter of um, researching and having um, the right studies for it. Yeah. And I mean, it is just so crazy how much women have been neglected from clinical trials and research and that, you know, things are only just coming to light and um, that tests like this are only now in 2023, <laughs> and like what you guys have been working on, right? Um, you know, available, right? It's like, you know, how is this possible? Although in other areas of science as well. So it, it's, it's so exciting. Um, I'd love to touch on perimenopause and menopause and you know what are you looking already specifically at you know transitions in that phase and do you have recommendations for women in that phase of life as well which is so um, important and can really wreak havoc on health if not managed correctly yes of course we do a lot of education on on menopause I think you know previously our women's education on menopause was hot flashes. You know, that that's all you experience. And in reality, it's so multifactorial that, you know, I think now there's 36 symptoms associated too. And so I think a lot of the work we do is, especially for perimenopause, where you're kind of like, do I have an illness? Do I have a cold? What is happening to my body? It's this big area of, you know, am I in menopause? Am I not in menopause? Um, but we actually are very surprised. We, we have about 20% of our customers are in menopause. And that is because there is such a high um, relationship between estrogen and the vaginal microbiome. Um, you know, estrogen produces something called glycogen and glycogen is actually what healthy lactobacilli bacteria use as an energy source. And so mm -hmm. when you start seeing those estrogen levels decline, you start seeing women having their vaginal uh, symptoms, whether that is dryness that leads to irritation or whether that is infection. Um, I will say most of the studies on the vaginal microbiome um, have been done on women of reproductive age. Um, mm -hmm. So it's hard to say, um, you know, this microbiome, what, what we think of a healthy, an optimal microbiome is for women of reproductive age should be the same for menopause. But we do see, we know women in menopause are, are having, you know, symptoms, um, whether that is they've never experienced vaginal symptoms and all of a sudden they have recurrent UTIs or they have BV or, or odor or discharge. Um, it, it's really correlated to estrogen. And so we like to work with menopause specialists on how do we approach this more holistically, right? Whether that is um, addressing the dryness, if they have an infection, addressing the infection. Um, but I would say, for example, women are more likely in menopause because of the lack of estrogen have what we call dysbiosis or high diversity of bacteria. Some women have vaginal infection symptoms. Some women don't. They just they just have the the atrophy symptoms, the the dryness. Um, and so it's really tricky. They they really have to go with the right providers because if you just run a lab core test or a Quest test, it can come back as positive for BV. But that, that mm -hmm. might mean that that is what their microbiome looks like now, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of the risks with dysbiosis are associated with preterm birth, IVF outcomes, fertility outcomes. Um, and so I think there should be a lot more research on 
what is an optimal microbiome in menopause for asymptomatic women. Um, mm -hmm. But we're, we are doing a lot of research. We actually are. Um, the first pass we took at, can we use the vaginal microbiome to predict a condition, whether that was endometriosis or menopause or PCOS? Um, so really, can we find a microbial signature associated with it? Menopause was actually the strongest signal. We were able to predict whether someone was in menopause or not with 99% accuracy. And that wow. didn't include age. That was just looking at the microbial composition of, of someone. Um, and so hopefully we can use the vaginal microbiome especially for those women who are transitioning and they, they're not really sure what is happening. Um, mm -hmm. Then it's hard to have data on your body on what is happening. So we're, we're excited about the work we could potentially do in, in the menopause space. That's super exciting. And because again, like why is there no predictor yet? Right. I've, I'm speaking a few different people in the space, but like to identify when menopause might come up, I think the best indicator is like, when, when did your mother have her <laughs> hit menopause? Exactly. Right. And that's exactly. it's like a real, like, okay, there's other environmental factors and stuff that could be taken into consideration. Um, exactly. But I'd also love to touch on the fertility component. This is obviously a huge thing. Um, I'm actually going to be at the um, Buck Institute at Jennifer Garrison's hosting the longevity summit next week. And obviously she's working on like, you know, uh, reducing ovarian aging because of the exponential um, aging of the ovaries compared to other organs in the body, which has a huge impact on, on women and women's health as well. And I'm, I'm sure you guys speak with her too. Um, to understand for fertility, so to come back to fertility point, what, how can you explain for people just thinking like, okay, how does my vaginal microbiome influence fertility? Is it not different components? Like what, what is the impact there? Um, and what's the correlation and what could people should, should people be thinking about? Yeah, of course. Um, if you go back to, you know, how I was explaining the vaginal microbiome as your local immune system, I would mm. use that as a premise of how does it link to fertility? Um, mm. I would say overall, there is evidence that lactobacilli dominance is beneficial for fertility. And this seems to be true for just about any population that is studied, you know, even in different geographical areas. Um, there is the normal healthy population, those that have recurrent implantation failure, miscarriage, unexplained infertility. Um, most, most studies point to lactobacilli dominance being beneficial for fertility. Um, mm -hmm. So up until last year, we really knew you know, lactobacilli is associated with optimal fertility and pregnancy outcomes. Dysbiosis is associated with suboptimal outcomes. And actually, um, there has been some more, much more exciting evidence that suggests that microbial modulation actually improves fertility outcomes. And so the main goal is really to get a patient to a lactobacilli dominant state. Um, if that happens, then the pregnancy rates go up. And we also see that with assisted reproductive technologies. Um, although I will say, specifically for IVF and other um, uh, reproductive technologies, there's a few things to keep in mind as we dive into the research. One is most studies are pretty small and on very specific populations. There's also a variation in sampling locations. Some look at the endometrial microbiome, some look at the vaginal microbiome. Um, and I always like to remind people, you know, the fertility journey is complicated and there's a lot of uh, different patient populations to potentially focus on. But there was actually a really interesting uh, meta-analysis done where they looked at 17 studies. I think it included like 3,500 patients. And it found that vaginal dysbiosis in IVF couples was associated with both early pregnancy loss and a reduction in clinical pregnancy rates. Um, and so wow. really going back to the, you know, you want to be in a state of lactobacilli dominance because you want to have that local immune system. Um, mm -hmm. And... and, and 
really, we've never really had a way of testing, right? Or a lot of doctors are starting to test for, you know, vaginal infections before doing um, IVF. But I would say um, my my favorite researcher in this space, her name is Immaculada Moreno. She's based um, out of the Carlos Simon Institute in Spain. She's doing fascinating research on um, on the microbiome's role in um, fertility outcomes in IVF. Mm-hmm. That's so exciting. And would you say, okay, so you go from testing, right? So what are solutions? What are things that people can be doing? And also what are conversations people should be having with their care provider, right? Their gynecologist um, or obstetrician potentially. Um, What should people be aware of, would you say? Yeah, of course. I I would say there's, um, there's almost like two cases for testing your vaginal microbiome. I would say in the beginning, when you are going to the preconception appointment and they're telling you, you know, you need to live a healthier lifestyle. You need to stop drinking alcohol, stop smoking. These are the things to consider in your life. This is how your mm-hmm. nutrition should change. That is a, a, a great moment to actually look at your microbiome um, when you are way before you go into thinking about IVF or assisted reproductive technologies in the preconception age. I think um, testing your microbiome, you know, you're testing all sorts of things um, when, when you are thinking about this. And so really testing your vaginal microbiome can definitely be very, very helpful. Um, and conversations to be had with your doctor, I would say, are, um, you know, how would this affect my fertility? And I, I would say a lot of the education should probably be done. I, I don't think they would go to the doctor's office and get education on their vaginal microbiome. Um, there are some doctors that are very advanced and very um, comprehensive that potentially do um, endometrial microbiome um, biopsies, which are helpful. Um, but I would say with thinking about how can I be healthier, your vaginal microbiome should definitely be a part of that conversation. Um, and then I say, when you go to a doctor for IVF, for example, you have now tried for six to 12 months, you're not able to get pregnant. You're going to the doctor, they're running a lot of different analysis, um, you know, seeing if there's any um, anything in your tubes that's abnormal, looking at any hypothalamic pituitary failure, dysfunction of, of your ovaries. That, that is also the right time to do it. Um, and usually those tests, they all come back, if they all come back negative, the patient gets put into this black box of you have unexplained infertility, right? Mm-hmm. And what I am hoping is that we can do enough research to have that 30% be a lot less and us being able to point to actually it's your microbiome. And we, that's a great, that's great news because we can, we know how to modulate it or we know how to, or we can start gathering the data on how to actually, uh, transition your microbiome to a lactobacilli dominated state, um, and so I think that is also when we should start testing, especially that black box. It can be so frustrating for women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it can feel like such a biological failure when there's really, we're not doing much for these women. We're just kind of leaving them as unexplained. And, and I think that is a misuse of the term unexplained. I think it's just, we haven't really looked into it. Um, mm-hmm. And last year, there was a really interesting study done out of Japan. It was the first interventional study looking for people who had experienced recurrent implantation failure, they would look at their microbiomes. And for those that had dysbiosis, they would uh, put them through antibiotics and probiotics. So they would modulate the microbiome. And those that were able to modulate the microbiome actually had the same fertility outcomes as those who started out in a lactobacilli state. Um, And so that I think will prompt fascinating research and hopefully a lot of hope for women, most importantly, that get put into this unexplained infertility bucket. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I know I have friends who've gone through this unexplained infertility and later they've had better outcomes as well. But 
it's so painful because you see kids everywhere, right? And if that's your focus and it's not working and it's not working year over year and yeah, I think it's 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 such a beautiful solution for so many women suffering that really want to have children or couples, obviously, as well, right? Um, and where it's just been such a struggle that this is a key piece that hasn't even been thought about or, or tested or, or looked into. Yeah. And is it a matter of, you know, providing, you know, the good bacteria, right? The, the probiotic, and is there quality ones or is there certain ones that are, are better than other ones? Can you maybe talk about, like, what's available at the moment for women to to be yeah. a testing, but then to be um, supplementing them with. Yes. Unfortunately there, it's hard to say, you know, there, um, there is, there are amazing products out there mostly mm-hmm. because a lot of over the counter probiotics um, there there's, they're not regulated. So they can have additional ingredients that aren't disclosed or we're not ex- entirely sure their effect on the vaginal microbiome because it hasn't mm-hmm. been studied. Um, mm-hmm. I think in, in Europe, there is um, a brand called Gynoflor. Um, that mm-hmm. doctors actually really recommend. Um, and I think in the U.S., you know, there is there's a lot of researchers that have these novel strain selections that are currently undergoing clinical trials. But what's mm-hmm. available over the counter to women, um, there are, I would say, the most well-researched strains that are in most of the products you find over the counter. Um, there's also a lot of doctors that recommend um, they, they'd get the compounding pharmacies to actually create vaginal suppositories with lactobacilli strains um, Mm -hmm. to help with that. Um, And I'm not sure if actually the probiotics that were used in the the study in Japan were, are available over the counter to most women. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would say there, there is a lot of probiotics out there with minimal research. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's hard to help women decipher, you know, what yeah. is worth your money? What's not worth your money? Yeah. A lot of the times women are already lactobacilli dominant. And the education we do is, you know, you don't necessarily need to take all of these things, actually. You're, you are, you know, your microbiome is in a good place right now. Um, mm. But I would say that the, the thing I would really recommend is looking at the ingredient list and seeing if there is any additional ingredients that shouldn't be in there. Mm. Um, and if they're able to find any research online on the specific strains mentioned and what they've been researched for. A lot of the times they're researched more for overall health or gut health. Um, but I would say it's important to have vaginal specific strains, whether that is Chris Fattis or um, Jensenai um, Gasseri in, in your probiotic. You guys need to invent this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're, we're working on it. <laughs> What are some of the um, roadmap items that you guys are working on that you're most excited about over the next few years? Yeah. Um, well, there is so much work to be done. I think what it excites me and my team about this space is that there is really um, not a lot done, yet we do stand on the shoulders of amazing researchers who have gotten us here. Um, and so it's really one um working with all of these researchers in the academic centers on, okay, we now have the largest data set on the vaginal microbiome and the metadata associated to it and start tapping into the labs, you know, whether they're working it um, on diabetes, whether they're working on preterm birth, um, but also really running clinical trials um, and better di- di- um, characterizing disease. I think in the beginning, we started the company, we said, I want to predict preterm birth. I want to predict IVF. And what we have learned is we have to take so many steps because we first need to understand the very basic conditions. Like we we're, we don't really understand, or I would say properly, um, what dysbiosis means 
for all ages, for all races, um, for all conditions and demographics. And so we're going to really start out with better characterizing disease. And once we have that better characterization, then we can start linking it to all of the uh, diseases that we where the microbiome plays an important role. Um, I think we are really interested in definitely helping those with unexplained infertility and, and what can we find in the microbiome. Um, so we're definitely looking into the fertility space um, over the next year. Um, and also just um, using our data to advance you know, our understanding of the vaginal microbiome and working with all the scientists in the community to advance. It's it's so beautiful, so exciting. And I was just thinking, like, what role or what, you know, if there's measures for, for even, young, like, younger girls as well, right? So we obviously talked about, like, the other end of the spectrum, sort of menopause and things like that, too. But um, sort of getting ahead of the game, do you think that there is potential in the future to, I mean, I guess they're less at the gynecologist as well. Like, would you be able to access that? But to even help, maybe, I guess, from of teenage years or something like that as well, to set them up for, for a positive start in life to then go into the 20s, 30s, et cetera. Um, do you think that there's scope for, for looking at younger age girls as well, just to um, ensure that they are in a healthy state going into their 20s? Of course. I think um, the very least we can do is start with education, right? Like mm -hmm. nobody taught us about, like I had never even heard of the vaginal microbiome up until a few years ago as a scientist in women's health, right? Like how, how had we never heard about it? It plays ludicrous, right? <laughs> and I think part of it stems from people's, um, you know, even saying the word vagina is hard for people. And so mm -hmm. I think just doing a lot of education uh, um, in the, the, uh, the teenagers um, and really helping them um, be comfortable with, you know, how do I talk about my symptoms? What is a symptom of an infection versus what is a cyclical system? How does my life affect my vaginal health? And how does my vaginal health affect my life? Um, yeah. I would say, um, but I think research is a little tricky on minors. Um, and so I think that it would just require um, uh, probably an IRB approved clinical study to look into it, I would say. If you compare it to what we're doing with our real world data set, um, it, it's a lot easier to gather data, unfortunately, and it's a mm -hmm. lot easier to work with patients who are willing to gather data. But we always get parents um, emailing us saying, you know, my 12 year old is having, um, you know, recurrent vaginal yeast infections or even even babies who are in their diapers for so long, you know, are starting to get a lot of yeast infections. Um, and so it's definitely something we we want to look into. And I think um, even what, how we can start today is just education. Mm -hmm. um, so phenomenal. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing for <laughs> the women around the world. Um, it's just so, so important. And this absurdity of knowing so little about women and the female body. I mean, this it, we really need to exponentially change this. So um, thank you. I really applaud you as yeah. well. Pita, can you share what excites you most and more in general now about the future of health and longevity and well-being in the coming years um, and beyond? Oh, my gosh. I think we can be talking about this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, all, every day I'm reminded of, you know, it's so depressing. We don't know anything about the female body. But I think in a way it's actually equal parts exciting. I think um, mm -hmm. we are, I think 
uh, finally getting a little bit of attention now and a a lot more funding, I would say. I think I have a reason to definitely be optimistic, I would say, Mm -hmm. especially with, you know, recently President Joe Biden announced the first the first ever, which is hard to believe in 2023, um, but Women's Health Research Initiative. Um, And so I think that. we're, we're finally starting to get attention. I think whether that is because everyone's finally figuring out that we control most of the healthcare spend or we are the chief medical officers of our family, I'm extremely excited about all of the companies that are popping up um, that are actually starting from a research-centric approach. I think there have been a lot of amazing companies that have increased our accessibility, right? So they have made the standard of care available online. But I think when the standard of care is somewhat broken, you're really scaling access to a broken system. And so I think we're now starting to see a lot more companies that are focusing on the research, that are focusing on why are ovaries aging before any other organ in our body? How can we create um, models of disease to actually properly study, right? Because if we don't have models of disease, we can't properly study the disease. We can't create medications or drugs. um, And we can't really understand what's going on in the female body. So... There's amazing labs and companies working on how can we create better models of disease, whether that's the vagina on a chip or organoid research that is very exciting. Mm. Um, And so I think if we kind of go back to first principles and we say, let's start with biology, because we kind of skipped over the biology and we just started giving women medications that weren't invented for them. Mm. Um, And so I'm really excited about this change in mindset of, wait a minute, we have to start with the research Let's actually understand from a biological perspective what is going on and through that, then start creating a new standard of care. Um, But I'm optimistic. I think we're getting a lot of um, excitement and I think we are screaming from the top of our lungs that we need to help women and we need to research their bodies a lot more. And I think um, we have a unique opportunity, I would say, because as we think about, you know, AI and generative AI and, and if we don't have training sets with female body and female biomarkers in them, then we can't even use, you know, these algorithms that are being invented to diagnose cancer or to diagnose other conditions because, you know, people who are, who look like you and I, we're not in the training data sets. So mm-hmm. how can we actually play, Abby, play a pivotal role in thinking about um, how do we include our data in, you know, AI predictive diagnostics? Um, and I think in terms of generative AI, vaginal health will be completely left behind because there is no data to, you know, to, to generate information. And so I think um, I'm excited about the opportunity that Evie will play, um, making sure that we don't get even further left behind in the world of AI. Yes, so important. And thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point around with the AIs, right? It's training on data sets, but the data sets are the they men, don't include right? us. Yeah. We don't have them. And how, what do you think? Like, what's the solution to that? How do we help people to understand the importance of training data sets or trying to get access to data that is specifically um, for women? Like, is, is it there? Is it available, do you think? Or do you think it's just completely not even available to for, for the AI to be training on? Yeah, I would say it's going to depend on each condition. Um, mm. I think, um, you know, we're going to have to be hopefully the, the the guidance on how you create these algorithms before actually using them to diagnose is going to be to report on the demographics of the data that was yeah. that was used um, in order to train and I think mm-hmm. um, I think it'll just require a lot of um, 
rethinking of, um, you know, how do we actually build fair algorithms that will properly diagnose women? And I think um, for female specific conditions, there is still a lot of research to be done before we start even training models. So I think for the for the conditions that AI is being applied to, whether that is heart disease or whether that is, you know, all different types of conditions. For example, heart disease and lung cancer, number one killers of women. So we can start thinking about if those are the number one killers of women, what is being developed in this space and how can we make sure women aren't being left behind? Um, Because that's what happened right in the 1980s. That's when we started figuring out, wait a minute, um, you know, in the 1980s, heart disease was the number one killer of women and men. And it was an amazing technological age of creating stints and creating statins and a lot of pills and so much innovation was done. And 20 years later, the the rate of heart disease in women kept going up while in men, it started going down. And that is the first time when we looked back and we realized, wait a minute, when we were inventing all of these screening procedures, all these medications, women were never included. Um, And so that should be, I think, a good learning as we think about generative AI and predictive AI, um, making sure that um, we have a reporting system in place. Um, and we also have the checks and balance of how can we make sure we we make it better for specifically women diagnosed. And I think the thing to remember is the 1993 uh, law in the US um, required women to be included in clinical research. Um, and I think now that the NIH is doing great work on, now you have to publish your research with sex as a biological factor to where before, mm-hmm. You were just saying this is how effective it was, but we didn't know it was effective, you know, this strong in women and this in men. And so now we're starting to get all of these reporting systems in place. It's just a matter of making sure the doctors and the clinicians who are treating the patient understand the limitations of the tools that they're using. Yeah. And I think for women to feel empowered to ask those questions to their healthcare providers and, you know, is this safe for women? Exactly. I saw some statistic at the talk that I think 80% of adverse medical condi- um, conditions for medication is an, on women and yeah. purely because the medication was tested on men and yeah. not on women as well. And um, yeah, so it, it's really time to change here. In, I mean, part, part of my time here in the UK and they've introduced um, talk therapy <laughs> for women of menopausal uh, symptoms, which is like, you know, talking about it will help the physical symptoms be better. I mean, it's just like, how is this possible in this day and age? Um, So I think it's allowing women, trust yourself, listen to your intuition. Like we're so much more wise. Like we just have to touch into that. And like, if you feel like something is off or wrong, you know, get a medical opinion, get a second or third one as well. And just know that the medical system as with, you know, status quo, the way it is, is not focused and caring for the women as it should be, because we don't have the medical research around it as well. So feel exactly. empowered, ask questions, ask again, don't be told, exactly. oh, it's just, you know, your symptoms are go on an SSRI or whatever it might be that you, if your symptoms feel like symptoms, then they probably are real and exactly. you can get to the bottom of it as well. Exactly. I always like to tell people, you know, women, when you go to the doctor, ask if the medication that they're giving you was ever tested on women or what the efficacy was on women. And also Mm -hmm. ask what are the tests that they are deciding not to run and why, right? Like there is, because there is so much that doctors are kind of on autopilot. I don't blame them. They have 15 minutes, but they're not thinking about how you could be different from one of their male patients. And Mm -hmm. as a patient, you are completely in the right to ask as many questions as, as you can. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, since my young age, my mother always sent us with like, make sure you have your 10 questions ready for the doctor. <laughs> That's a great I, I always liked it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah, some doctors, you know, like it, most doctors, I would say, 
won't be delighted, but I think they, they would be happy to educate the patient or at least answer yeah. questions. Yeah. No, I mean, I've had the, I've had another example of my first obstetrician. I have two kids, right? But the first one, um, he uh, honestly went on to, I would come with my questions and he's like, oh no, don't believe what you hear from other people or what you read on the internet. It's always different. And I was like, but I still have questions that I would like answered. And then my, my then husband asked a question. He's like, you're not even pregnant. <laughs> I was like, this is not good medical care. So anyway, yeah. Ladies listening to this and to feel empowered, ask the questions. You yes. have every right. You're not making it up. It's not just some weird whim. Yes. Women are so neglected, if you will, yeah. in so many respects. And so just take your symptoms seriously. You have every right to be feeling the best um, and be the best version of yourself. So um, and your vaginal microbiome is just as important. So yes. um, focus on that too. For my listeners interested in understanding more about the vaginal microbiome for longevity and, and health optimization, what are some online resources or books um, or other materials you recommend they could start with? Yes, we have a lot of our uh, resources on our website. I would say our content team has done an amazing job at taking everything my team works on on the research side and science side and translating that um, into information for our, our users. Um, I would say there is there is a lot of amazing books, I would say. Um, there is a book called Sex Matters that I highly recommend that kind of mm -hmm. dives into how the bias in the medical system actually affects women. Mm -hmm. um, that would be mine. If you were to read one book, it would be Sex Matters. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I think there is... There are amazing resources online, I would say. Um, there are also amazing communities um, where women are being very open about their symptoms, whether that is on Reddit or different Facebook communities, where women are educating other women or at least making them feel like they're not suffering in silos. Um, but I highly recommend the Sex Matters book as my all-time favorite book. Um, and um, yeah, I think if, if, you, if you don't find information on our website, um, feel free to um, email us. Our science team is always reading every single paper that is published every week. Um, and we are trying to make sense of, you know, is this something that our audience would want to learn about? Um, and so you can go to askevi.com and submit a question if, if you don't find the resource there. Beautiful, Peter. And where can people follow what you're up to and Evie's up to? Um, what are social media handles or websites that you'd like to send people to? Yes. Um, the blog is um, evie.com slash ask evie. Um, we're on Instagram as evie. We're also on TikTok um, doing amazing videos. Um, and we're also on LinkedIn. Um, and you can definitely follow my personal LinkedIn. Um, I like to post about the research I'm reading um, or via the, the blog posts. Um, but we're also available. If anyone wants to learn, please feel free to reach out. Beautiful. Thank you for being so inclusive. <laughs> um, Peter, do you have a final ask or recommendation or any parting thoughts or message for my audience today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would just like to, one, for all the women who are out there listening to this that have had their own story where they feel dismissed or they lose hope um, or they're suffering in silo with symptoms, I would just say, you're not alone. We are doing as much work as possible to, to help understand your bodies and help treat your conditions. Um, and I would also say, you know, just to repeat what we always said is you have the right to seek a different doctor, 
um, until you find the right answer, until you find an empathetic doctor, you have the right to ask questions. Um, you are the expert on your own body, right? Whatever you're feeling is your body telling you something. Um, and just be relentless in finding med- answers to, to the symptoms you're experiencing. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on today. Thank you for the work that you're doing from all the women around the world and people listening um, here today. And thank you, everyone who's tuned in and made it this far to better understanding women's health. Um, So, so grateful for you all. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.